Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Alice Sullivan, a sociologist and head of research at the UCL Social Research Institute. Alice was director of one of the UK's major social surveys, the 1970 British Cohort Study, for 10 years, from 2010 through 2020. Her background is in the sociology of education, and her research is focused on social and educational inequalities. She is an advocate for collecting data on sex in social surveys and for academic freedom to discuss questions regarding sex, gender, and gender identity. I welcome Alice Sullivan to Savage Minds. I came across your name and your work a few years ago when you penned a piece with Judith Suisa, where you two discuss academics who have suffered intimidation by trans activists for not adhering to a particular orthodoxy on gender, specifically transgender issues. Now, we've heard about many such academics in the past couple of years who've been under attack, such as Rosa Friedman, Kathleen Stock, and others. But you too have been at the receiving end of intimidation, all for questioning the trans orthodox view that to me, I've been working on this for a while <laughs> in and out of academia, in this sort of reeks of a scientific hokum, namely that biological sex, this is the claim, that biological sex is the social construct, not gender, but gendered identities are bizarrely fixed innate. And then from the name calling prevalent, you know, on social media and elsewhere, towards many of us who have critiqued the attempt to naturalize gender as innate, while also reversing what is scientifically true, despite arguments to the contrary, that sex, not gender, is somatic. The term TERF is used, STFU, Diana Fire, on and on. And I've been working on this issue for about nine years now, outside of academia. And I was uh, not a tenured professor uh, at Goldsmiths, but I found my position bizarrely not renewed after some pieces I wrote in 2013 on this subject. I got into writing after seeing the dumpster fire that was the response to Suzanne Moore and Julie Burchill's pieces, if you recall, in January of 2013. Quite ironically, I found out as I was giving birth at St. Mary's. So there you have it. And journalists too has fa have faced pushback, both from editors, readers, and Today, it's quite known amongst journalists that the only place you can write on this subject will be right-wing papers. So could you discuss how the schoolyard bullying has been allowed to enter academic discourse, institutions, and why these institutions are kowtowing largely to both the unquestioned rhetoric, because you're not supposed to question it because questioning it is akin to murder, and the bullying. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really extraordinary and shocking. And obviously, you've been in this for a lot longer than I have. Um, and when I first became aware of it, I, I was just so shocked because these women were being vilified, women like Kathleen Stock, for basically for saying two plus two equals four, for saying things which I thought were entirely uncontroversial, for saying things which the vast majority of people believe and which are grounded in scientific fact. And somehow with this extraordinary rapidity, 
all of this is, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, those sex is a continuum or there are five sexes or something. Sex isn't really real. We're just supposed to accept it just like that. And you're not allowed to talk about it. So... <laughs> You know, if they had great arguments and evidence for their claims, I'm sure they'd want to talk about it, but they don't. So they don't want to talk about it. But I have never seen anything like this. And obviously, it's academia is not an ivory tower and we're affected by what goes on outside. And so obviously, well, one of the things that was happening was that um, reform of the Gender Recognition Act was being put on the table that would that would mean that sex was effectively replaced with gender identity that you know anyone can choose what their legal sex is just just based on pure choice um, not based on any gatekeeping at all and so then you have two slogans trans women are women and no debate and they go together these are you're just you're we're proposing dramatic extreme legislative change and yet you're not allowed to talk about it i've honestly never ever come across that before within any democratic society on any issue the idea that you're proposing a change but you don't want to talk about it so that was that was i was when i first came across all of this obviously a lot more recently than you did i was just completely gobsmacked by it um hearing about Maria McLachlan being attacked at Speaker's Corner, um, you know, women being attacked by male-bodied people who feel like they're doing a great thing. Um, it's really progressive to beat women up um, in order to <laughs> shut them up. Amazing. Alice, you know, I think what really got me is I come from a background of uh, comparative literature and cultural anthropology, I have taught queer theory. I did it at NYU. I taught it within even classes, graduate classes at the New School for Social Research and later at the University of Montreal. But what really killed me is that somehow the shark was jumped after I left that subject. I moved on from queer theory. It wasn't even a, it was part of my doctoral work. I wrote a critique of Butler for my PhD thesis, which became my first book. And Nothing in gender trouble <laughs> says anything about this. And this is part of the problem. Watching Owen Jones' recent interview with Butler. I've had one back and forth with Butler years ago over an interview she granted the trans advocate, a blog out of Houston. And what I'm seeing is a lot of what is called gender identity and gender theory, etc. while it falls under identity politics rubric, it's based on some rather horrible readings of Butler. And then one must wonder, seeing Owen Jones' recent interview with her, if Butler has even read Butler. Yeah. And because <laughs> there's so many misreadings of her own work within that interview, because she was never advocating for anything body transformative. It was about performativity. Her first book is all about gender performativity. It's about sort of queering homosexual desire in a certain way. In the States, there were others like Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who wrote Between Men, a really beautiful book about Victorian literature, which analyzed how men express same-sex desire through the women they were with. So think of Dejeuner sur l'air and it's the men in contact with the nakedness through 
themselves being closed, but the women being naked. And there was a lot of great analysis in the book. But I, I really have to say that when I was giving birth that day in St. Mary's, I was in labor and I saw what was going on with Suzanne Moore and Julie Birchall. I, my first question to someone who had been talking to me about this, this is how I found out through a lesbian in London. I, I immediately called her and I was just like, why is there no public scholar, a, a feminist, someone, come on, Oxford, Cambridge, someone who is tenured speaking out? Nobody, I don't know if you recall that, there were a few blogs written by professors, but they had to sort of go on the down low, you know? And I was just outraged. And so that's how I got in, by being shocked by someone's rant one night during Pride and investigating and investigating it and finding out that really things were as she said they were. And I just thought, well, this is not the queer theory I knew. Wow. And then, you know, you take this up from a sociological perspective, hence your work on the, the census itself and the ways in which language is being used to pervert scientific knowledge, the very thing that these transgender activists claim they are advancing, a new science. Yeah, I don't know if they think it's a new science, but I, I mean, it is interesting. I'm, this was not even on my radar when at the time when you were giving birth and becoming very aware, I'm sure, of your material reality as a woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have never had anything to do with queer theory or academic feminism, for that matter. I'm an academic and I'm a feminist, but I'm not an this thing called an academic feminist, which seems to be, frankly, not very feminist and not very academic, except in the pejorative sense of that term. Um, feminism for me is about solidarity between women and standing up for other women when they're being harassed and silenced. And that is something that the so-called academic feminists have not done. So I, I just don't know how they call themselves feminists. I guess to them, feminism is a theory. And uh, to me, it's just quite a basic thing that, you know, you see women um, being oppressed and you try and do something about it. <laughs> so I am not interested in reading Judith Butler and uh, playing around with this kind of pretentious nonsense. I've always been very hostile to all of that because I'm basically, I'm an empirically minded sociologist and I, you know, I crunch numbers. And I'd always just ignored that kind of stuff because it's got nothing to do with me. But what's amazing is the kind of overreach that I can't ignore those people anymore because they are now trying to determine what I can ask in a questionnaire. And that's that's the ambition of it is actually amazing. They kind of want to take over the world. And this is why we have to fight back because sex is a category across, you know, obviously biology and all of the human sciences, all of the social sciences and, and, and philosophy, anything conceptual that talks about human beings. So to say that you cannot talk about sex, which is in combination with age, it is the most fundamental demographic variable. It is the most fundamental thing um, to, to your life in all sorts of dimensions of life. And these people are saying, you can't talk about it. You can't collect data on it. And not only you can't do that, but it's evil to do that. <laughs> and yet they come from this place of kind of, initially it seems like extreme relativism, like, you know, oh, you, oh, these concepts aren't as clear cut as you think they are. 
and then they go to and you're definitely wrong and you're evil and it's like well okay how do you combine this kind of what sounds initially like they're trying to be really sophisticated and go oh things are more complicated than you think and then they end up in this place which is fundamentalist it's really interesting well, it, it, it's always what we call, uh, a friend of mine, we call this the crazy straw argumentation process, where it, it starts off with, well, we're breaking, I don't know if you remember, this was popular about five years ago, well, we're breaking down the gender binary. And then you're like, okay, explain to me how uh, this is breaking down the gender binary instead of arguing for the fact that men can and should be welcome to wear makeup, high heels, stilettos, fishnets, and jogging outfits that are bright pink, if that's how you are perceiving gender. And then they go back to, oh, but you're reducing us to what's between our legs, you know? And it goes in this very strange, twisty shape logic that ends up refabricating the very misogyny and binarisms that we've been fighting for like hundreds of years, you know, historically. And I find this so frustrating because you end up, you know, you see it on, t on Twitter. In fact, when I mentioned, I think they're redefining biology. I am referring to a tweet that someone made to me about an hour ago saying that I should like get informed and get educated about science because things have changed. Right. So I'm yeah. like, great. I said, look, when you can point to me, to a person who was born from their father's penis, I'm all ears, but this is the thing. And not to be snarky, you know, because I understand. I just interviewed Ray Blanchard two days ago about gender dysphoria, his work on autogonophilia, uh, which is much hated by some of the trans community, but actually much supported by another part of the trans community. And there, you know, Ray was telling me that if he had had years ago any kind of patients who actually thought that they were literally becoming the opposite sex, he would not be able to approve them for follow-up treatment for surgery and hormones. And he said these would be warning signs. And he was critiquing the politicization of this. And I find this fascinating, of course, because I'm looking at this anthropologically and you know, you, you'll see trans activists uh, finger pointing feminists saying, well, you're getting your own medicine. And what they're referring to is the seventies. And they're referring to the fact that women tried to make an argument for oppression. So the trans lobby has skillfully jumped on the oppression Olympic train. So, you know, you'll see those kinds of art arguments, but the reality, what you have just mentioned is what's important, not just for your data of your research or for the lives of women so that after an earthquake, UNDP knows how many t tents to send to Haiti and how, how they should divide the communities because sometimes they do have to divide communities, separating single men from families, etc. These are safeguarding issues. Now, we're, we're in a world where, well, in, you advocated for a rethink of how the census this year would be done. You wrote back in 2019, the guidance acts to conflate two distinct characteristics, sex and gender reassignment, both protected categories under the Equality Act 2010, and will effectively transform the longstanding sex question into a question about gender, a gender identity. We are concerned that this will actively undermine data reliability on a key demographic variable. And you, know, you, you talk about the damage and the ability to capture and remedy sex-based discrimination that will be threatened. So 
What was the outcome of that petition sort of in, 19, uh, in 2019? Wow. Uh, in terms of the actual decision on the census, we, we still don't we still don't have one so I think um, it's been a little confusing because the head of ONS in Diamond went on the Today program on Friday and said sex will be legal sex but um, I guess it turns out that he misspoke and a decision has not yet been made so we here we are the census is in March it's in a few weeks time and we are so close to the wire we have the academic community speaking with one voice saying, you know, sex is really important and sex should mean sex, by which I mean, obviously, biological sex, natal sex. So we're saying if we need to give guidance about how people answer it, we should tell people that they answer it according to what they were registered at birth. Um, because you cannot change your sex. Sex is immutable. Um What's really interesting is that in all the discussions uh, with the Office for National Statistics, they've clearly been very captured by lobbyists and they've been talking to lobbyists instead of talking to the scientific community. They can't find any quantitative social scientists who agree with them. And you would think that that would worry them, you know, that they can't find relevant academics. Um, they can find random politicized academics, theologians, and, you know, I'm not kidding, people who are not in remotely the right disciplines to be even talking about data collection, they can find people like that to, to support their view. But that shouldn't count for anything. So what's been amazing to me is the way this process of policy capture has worked so effectively on organizations that really should know better. It's really shocking. Um, I mean, part of what happened to me, of course, after um, organizing that letter was that I was uh, no platformed by the National Center for Social Research. So they had organized an event on the measurement of sex. And that was an event between the National Center for Social Research and the Office of National Statistics. And they're, they're working very closely together on the census. So this matters. So the event was cancelled and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I did a subject access request on the data, which means that I got all the emails that named me. Um, and it turned out that they had not avoided emailing about me. So it was all very clear cut that um, an LGBT group within um, Natsen had said that I, I couldn't possibly be allowed to speak because it would do real harm to audience members. I mean, this is, it's extraordinary. Well, I just got stabbed by a vowel, you said, just so you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is absurd. This is what we're told, that words are murder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you know, they and they had a they had a phone call between the speakers who would have been ONS and Natsan speakers, and they decided to cancel the event rather than have me speak. So they cannot even hear the view which they knew was absolutely the mainstream view within quantitative social science because I had already organized this letter with 80 people signed it. I'm sure I could have got far more had I had more time. Ten fellows of the British Academy, you know 
absolutely people who run major surveys in this country it's absolutely clear sex is real and it's a really important social and sociological variable it's such an uncontroversial view and yet you can't be allowed to say it and that that is what seems to me unique you know other topics where people have been silenced at least have been kind of genuinely controversial in the sense that the people being silenced are expressing a minority view in this case you can't express the majority view that's it's amazing that they've achieved that absolutely amazing and then of course it turned out um that one of the people involved in that at Natsen, Nancy Kelly, was then appointed as CEO of Stonewall. Yeah, I was have... just about to ask you about that. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's into institutional capture within institutional. I mean, they've literally captured her. <laughs> right. And I mean, Stonewall has such a powerful role in all of this. They have been so powerful in getting into organizations and that, you know, hats off to them in some ways. They absolutely understand how organizations work. They understand how universities work. They know that um, the people running universities love league tables. And so they have that kind of um, Stonewall index that everyone's gonna rush to compete to be, to score highly on. And so then you have the value of academic freedom being thrown out of the window because it clashes with what Stonewall want. Absolutely. And in doing research on other subjects, what I am finding uh, is that many institutions have zero idea about what the Equalities Act does to protect our rights, if we can say women without you know, mm. <laughs> getting hate yeah. mail. <laughs> um, so you know um yeah i mean talk about the second sex we are you know i'm finding when i do requests of information researching articles i had a discussion this morning with uh the quality commissioner's office and they don't know anything about this i was able to suss this out in a very long discussion almost an hour and I was a little shocked to find that because this has been all over the media, right? Like, obviously, women are coming to understand what's going on about our rights. Let's say now that Biden has rolled back rights for women with his executive order last week, uh, there'll be people who know more about it, let's say, if they are sportswomen, because they have seen directly what's happened. There will be other people who are less able to because perhaps they're teachers and they've been indoctrinated because Stonewall also, the version of Stonewall in the US, like the HRC, they have extreme reach. Uh, I've even found out that the HRC spends millions on the order of 14 million a year on fake news, okay? Um, they legally don't have to reveal everything, so I wasn't able to dig uh, as far as I wanted, but the capture is happening, and it's happening, as you well know, with Twitter and Facebook booting women who say that the penis is not female, who would have thought that's where we are, Galileo? No. And now we're, we're seeing this very perverse blacklisting happening within institutions, big tech, and then, 
you know, you have to always worry if your boss is going to get a phone call about you or an anonymous email, as one teacher in Wales has happened. He lost his job because someone trolled his social media account and saw that he did not agree that men are not women. And it seems that there's not much protection for people in these positions, you know? Like, you can have a letter, like as you mentioned, and people can sign, and that can be pushed, but who knows what's going to happen with the census this year? And what will the outcome of that be, Alice? Well, you know, maybe next week we'll know the answer to that question. At the moment, all I can say is that um, I continue to push very hard um, for natal sex and um, I hope that whatever the outcome is that it will not be self-ID. There are a number of other options in between. Um, so we will see what happens with that and the reason why it's so important is because it sets a precedent. Um, we're seeing sex falling away from so many other data collection exercises. So um, for example, we have gender mandatory gender pay gap reporting in this country, but ACAS has told um, companies that that should be based on self-ID and that they can actually exclude non-binary employees from the data. I mean, this is one of the craziest things. The idea that if you're not binary, you don't have a sex, of course you have a sex. And your employee can, your employer can perfectly well tell, you know, for example, if you're a woman of childbearing age, declaring that you're non-binary does not remove your oppression or, okay, maybe it does. Maybe it does. In which case, what we need is good data on both sex and gender identity in order to test that hypothesis. If by declaring yourself non-binary, you can remove sex-based oppression and get paid the same as men, great. I think everyone will do it tomorrow, but we need accurate data to find out whether that's true. Um, we see the same thing with crime data. Police forces are um, allowing the offender, the perpetrator, to choose what sex they are declared. Obviously, the victim has no say in this. And that it's really important. People often think, oh, it's such small numbers, it really doesn't matter. Well, if you think about violent crime, and particularly sexual crime, it's really obvious that it does matter because there are so few female offenders. So just a few men switching from being registered as male to female can make a dramatic impact on the data. Um, so for example, there was a story just last week in the news where the BBC was reporting that there'd been this huge uptick in the last few years in female sex offenders, child sex offenders, so females um, uh, doing sexual offences against children. And uh, so there's a question there, is that real or is it artifactual? Is it because of a change in the way the data has been collected? People asserting very strongly that, oh, it's only gender identity that matters. How dare you assert that women couldn't be doing these crimes? Well, I'm not asserting that they couldn't be. I'm saying we need accurate data in order to test that hypothesis. If we've got both sex and gender identity, then we will know. Um, and we can find out whether that uptick in uh, supposedly female crime is actually based on uh, just, just a change in the way the data has been collected. Why would anyone possibly object to accurate data collection? It's only because they do not want it to be possible to say that sex matters and to 
demonstrate it clearly. I think deep down they know. Um, but, you know, proof denies faith. And so, you know, it's, it is a faith. And the whole idea to them of collecting data which might test their faith is completely sacrilegious. I wrote a piece about this years ago. Uh, I called this a type of auto de fe, where we must pass a religious test of torture. It's ridiculous because it's it's almost funny too at the same time because I'm like having to remind people, you know that we can think even though we have a uterus, right? Because that's the <laughs> insult is that suddenly, uh, I guess I should have introduced you and said, okay, now shut up because you're a woman and we'll let the dude in the room talk because that's sort of what's going on. I mean, I do know people, as most of us know people who identify as transgender. My views, however, about the willingness to capitulate to certain myths for me personally has changed. And one of the reasons why it's changed is because I realized like I was a student, I was taught these texts and I was also raised as a female to be sympathetic and to watch out for people's feelings. And I do think that has been somewhat of an own goal for women. You know, we have bizarrely been nice about it. Hence, we're left with this monster of having to say, but wait, isn't rape something that you have to legally have a penis to do? So it would be literally impossible that a woman is like when we see an article in, this, in the news mm. and women are starting to raise the questions more and more about this, including women who, like me, 10 years ago, were very oh, but she's she's just a poor soul who identifies as a woman, and what's the harm? And as Ray Blanchard said to me the other day, well, back in the day, these were anomalies. At his center in Canada, there were 12 referrals a year, not the 4,000% explosion that has happened with the Tavistock. So I, I have to wonder why people are refusing to see what I view as a, a really vicious misogyny at the heart of this. And I say this not to paint with one brush all trans people, because God knows not everyone's the same, but the lobby. And the lobby includes non-trans identified people as well, by the way. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important um, to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I even try to move away from talking about trans activists now because it has the word trans in it and makes it sound like you're talking about trans people who are activists. And that's not it. So I, I, I try to talk about gender identity extremists now because actually most of the gender identity extremists that I have had problems with have not been trans at all. They're just men who don't like women <laughs> and want exactly. to sh shut women up. And it is amazing that women are constantly being told to be kind and we're also being told to, you know, choke on a basket full of cocks and die in a grease <laughs> fire. So where is the kindness towards us? It's absolutely amazing <laughs> that people are willing to see that as progressive. <laughs> sorry, just you know, the car. I remember the Cox comment, and yeah. I was thinking at the time, I'm like, how vivid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I've never seen a basket full of Cox, but yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, something out of like the Decameron or something. Like, oh, a basket full of Cox. It sounds <laughs> even something that could be part of the Twelve Days of Christmas on the. <laughs> <laughs> on the 12th day of Christmas, you know, a basket full of cocks. And, and so, yeah, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, but this is the thing is there's an, an essence of MRAism at, 
at the core here. And I, I find it appalling when you're having reasonable discussions with people and they go sour online because someone says, and leftists get this, I mean, true leftists, not neoliberal types, but they're saying, well, no, I adhere to a a historical material reading of culture and history. Mm -hmm. And so gender identity actually flies in the face of that. And I was watching an interview today with Jyoti Brar, who's, you know, very active on the left in the UK. And, and yet she gets slack for this. Everyone's getting slack who pushes back. So ironically, after I wrote my 2013 piece, I was the subject of a defamatory piece by Jacobin. I was like, oh, no, I asked for a repost. Not possible. They would not allow me to respond. Uh, <laughs> that was murky. But what I'm finding is you know, I've recently had an issue with Sage publications. They ran a trash piece. It's not even actual peer reviewed articles in the quality that you or I would call peer-reviewed articles. I call this peer as in I brought a six-pack of beer to the peer, drank it, and approved the article because what they ran in the sociological review calls women a turf on every other paragraph, if not every paragraph. It's a, it's a publication that's been devoted to attacking all of us who are stating something that quite kindly, we're not you know, advocating. I've never seen anyone from you to Stock to Freeman to anyone even outside of academia say transgender people should be put in camps and should be refused human rights. No. Why the hyperbole, do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that special issue in the sociological review was absolutely shocking and shameful um i think that's the oldest sociology journal in this country and they've just completely destroyed their own credibility i don't think anyone um, of any seriousness would want to publish there now uh the the hyperbole is a is a massive feature, isn't it? So I saw a tweet by Joe Grady this morning. Um, who Joe Grady is the head of the um, UCU University and College Union, and she tweeted that debate is violence. Now, no, it isn't. It isn't. Debate is not violence, and conversation is not harm. And, you know, nobody is denying anyone's existence. So the hyperbole is really interesting. The slogans. And yeah, it, it, it's depressing. It's really depressing to see that particularly on the left and to see it in combination with the denial of free speech as a worker's right in a democracy. If, if you don't have the right to participate in democracy without getting fired, then free speech only exists for people who are you know, independently wealthy or something and don't need to care about getting fired. So this should be something that the left care about a lot. And instead, we have people who are trade unionists and see themselves as being on the left, spending their time trying to hound and harass people, trying to get women fired when, you know, I was brought up to think that the trade unions are there 
to stop people from getting fired, to protect the rights of workers against harassment and abuse. It's, uh, it, I find it quite devastating, actually. I think that it, it's, it's so disappointing for so many women that um, the left and the unions have abandoned us, but it's also very disappointing that they have abandoned civil liberties as a value because it just completely gives that territory over to the right. Free speech and academic freedom are just right-wing talking points. It's so ahistorical. It is so short-sighted. What makes them think that they're not going to be next if we don't protect those values? This is what I have been working on for the last month. I am horrified by the clampdown on free speech before 6 January. But what really got me about 6 January is how we're seeing the media dance around and institute censorship. They dance around it being called censorship as, you know, many leftist journalists and, and just journalists themselves. I mean, you know, many journalists try to step away from any political affiliation, but they've noticed how the capital and central Washington has become a military lockdown. And, and there are people like Glenn Greenwald who've been writing about how this is becoming a metaphor for free speech because it, it literally now is in terms of that specific geographical site. But we saw it. We saw it with Megan Murphy kicked off Twitter. We saw it with Posey Parker kicked off Twitter. People are getting kicked off Twitter for saying that men cannot be women, something that Ray Blanchard, one of the top psychologists in the field, one of the earliest researchers in this field has stated. So we're in a, you know, a Moebus strip of sorts where there are two realities existing on both sides of the strip and never the two shall meet. Because I think fundamentally, as much as I'd love to see, like I do want to see Palestinian rights. I think that is doable. But this, I actually don't think there is a, a bridge in terms of the realities being posited in, on the one hand, that social engine, oh, I'm sorry, gender is a social construct, and the other, that uh, sex is a social construct, and that gender is in my brain. And, I, and, and so this leads me to address with people who work in this field, what does it mean? I asked both Ray Blanchard and Will Malone, I said, well, why not tell a patient, oh, you identify as a woman, okay, um, get in the kitchen and make me some lunch. Why not that as the cure? Simply because what we are seeing, and, and it's not a coincidence that women are pushing back, we recognize these hallmarks of sexism. And people are saying, but no, sit your pretty little brain down there. This isn't sexism. What this is, it's progressive and you just don't understand it. So I'm gonna mansplain it to you. Oops, I'm gonna explain it to you. And, and this is what's been, I've literally witnessed this since I started into the research of like you, I actually never considered myself a feminist. I never did feminist research because that was sort of already overtaken in academia by gender studies, queer theory, et cetera, even cultural studies to a certain degree in the US. But now we're seeing this 
trajectory of science is being, you know, rewritten. We're turfs for saying that men cannot be women. And we are denying human rights by having the discussion. Why is it, and even, oh my God, what you guys went through in the panel two months ago at the GRA panel, I was floored when Peter Gibbons said, I'm going to read him, read his quote, could you each confirm for me your view as to whether a trans woman is a woman and whether a trans man is a man, please? And I thought, well, these are questions that reflect more about religious indoctrination and capture of even the government as if we were back in McCarthy's America where people were regularly asked, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of the United States? Right. And it's, it's a mantra. No sane person could really believe trans women are women because they wouldn't be trans if they were women. So, I mean, it's very straightforward. No, of course they're not women. There might be some circumstances where we're able to treat them as though they are women and other circumstances where we're not. I mean, obvious circumstances like sporting competition, where it's obviously completely unreasonable um, because bodies matter. So let's have a conversation about it. We can't have a conversation about it if people just insist on repeating slogans and trying to get other people to um, endorse those slogans. That is brain dead. And I, I find it so depressing that an elected member of parliament would talk in those terms, but then it's absolutely commonplace. You know, he's not the only one talking in those terms. It's honest, it's, it makes me wonder what happened to all the grown-ups? What happened to all the adults? It feels like we've descended into some kind of kindergarten. Um, people just playing games with words. And it's the consequences are very, very real. So you talk about Blanchard saying that actually someone thinking they could literally change sex would be a red flag. And that's really interesting because actually, how can you possibly give informed consent if you're being lied to, if you're being told that you can literally become the opposite sex, we know how serious these surgeries are that people go through. And, you know, young girls having hysterectomies, um, being given testosterone and so on. It's very, very serious. And they do it on a promise that they're actually going to become men. And it's not true. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking. And this is... Uh, you know, with the scandal that's unfolding at the Tavistock, you would hope that that would make people realize academic freedom is not an abstract value. They were criticized for not collecting data, not keeping records on things like um, the proportion of autistic girls that they were seeing. And, you know, as a sociologist, the idea that we look at this rapid phenomenon of, um, you know, young girls identifying as trans and say, oh, yeah, nothing to see here. Obviously, this has always been the case and we just never noticed before. Well, no, this is a social change. Let's interrogate it. Let's find out what's going on. If you can't do that, there will be victims and those victims will be among the most vulnerable in society. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. 
We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What struck me about the Kira Bell case was not only her age or the other personal factors she had lived through in her life. It's the push towards this that comes from everywhere. I've often said, and I do hope this will be investigated honestly in the future, in the very near future, that I think media has had a heavy role to play in this. We see Mm -hmm. it. Look, I I published many pieces with Counterpunch, love Counterpunch. I'm a committed leftist. But at a certain point, my editor said, Julian, we can't run any more gender critical pieces because we get harassed too much. And I get it. And we did. My first article with them, we got over 100 death and rape threats. I had to leave Britain for several months. I was frightened. I had just given birth. They were rape threats directed at my six-month-old daughter. It was really like... Uh, people warned me and I thought I was like, I was in the U.S. Army. I have I have been shot at by Contras when I lived in Nicaragua. Like I've been through a lot of stuff. I thought I was tough enough. And that sent me around the bend a little bit. And I had to get away. That said, I am so alarmed by the way that media is not being objective at all. And people like Kira, others even younger, even today, they read these brave and strong stories. They, they see a way of, of committing themselves to a social project even. And it's interesting because, you know, your field and mine are somewhat related in that we're seeing a demise of, of society in certain ways and a recreation of these societies virtually. Blanchard talks about this. The rise of the internet has has paved the way to the politicization of gender. Now with lockdown, people's only communities may very well be, in most cases, the internet. And there's a sense of wanting to belong that these treatments offer, especially to the young, immature mind. No offense to young people listening to the show, but... I have done things even at the age of 25 I wish I hadn't done, you know. Our brains are still developing. And we're searching out our peer groups at, in adolescence. We're even doing that in our 20s. We're looking for belonging. We're looking for people to reflect upon, to hear us. This seems to be a cocktail now with COVID and lockdown for more disaster. I'm wondering if you've given thought to this. Right. Yeah, we have an absolute crisis in um, children and young people's mental health in this country, obviously not just in this country, but the, the figures in this country are very, very clear when you compare current generations of youth to previous generations, their mental health is terrible, uh, especially girls and especially LGB youth. So they are more likely to be depressed and self-harming and even um, have made suicide attempts by far than previous generations. So something has gone really, really wrong. And it seems to me that we should at least investigate the possibility that the huge increase in girls presenting at gender identity clinics is related to that mental health, that wider mental health crisis. 
and that we need to be treating mental health in a holistic way rather than sending people down a gender identity pathway where you know if if all you have is a hammer you're going to see everything as a nail it's obvious that these girls have a lot of comorbidities that need to be addressed and often have been through traumatic family experiences and so on some of them will be gay some of them won't um we also i think need to step back and think why is the mental health of young people in this generation so bad. Um, there are so many things that are different about young people's lives now than those of us who grew up in you know, 70s and 80s, that there are lots of hypotheses. You know, is it about the restrictions on young people's lives where they're not actually going out and having independent time and doing some of the naughty things that previous generations of young people did like drinking smoking and having sex if you again if you look at the figures they're so much less likely to be doing all of those things because those things demand human contact they're under much more academic pressure they have to deal with social media now i don't know the answers i don't know which if any of these things are leading to this crisis of mental health i don't know to what extent it might be that you know young people are more likely to admit that they're having problems perhaps but there's definitely something going on here which demands investigation it seems it seems unlikely to me that it is unrelated to this gender identity stuff. You know, we, we're witnessing this huge phenomenon among young girls. Can we at least step back and ask the questions? And this is again where, you know, the, the gender identity extremists saying, no, you cannot ask those questions and you cannot write about this is so damaging. Uh, when you think about, for example, Lisa Lippman, who wrote one of the first papers examining this, um, talking about rapid onset gender dysphoria and the way that friendship groups, peer groups are really important to girls in terms of their identities. She was absolutely monstered and they tried to take that paper down. Now, that is not healthy. Fine, disagree with it. Um, say that the methodology isn't adequate. Do another paper that challenges it. Why do you want to remove the conversation? Surely uh, she even had to write a an addressing of this, which was well received, as was the first draft. I've spoken to Lisa various times over this because she was also in a position with within the university that it, this does put one's livelihood at risk you know i mean women have to eat <laughs> and sleep and all the things that men do surprise surprise and it's it's not a coincidence that people are going after one's livelihood for the crime of research for the crime of putting facts on paper if you disagree with those facts if you think the methodology like you said was incorrect show me uh, again, my, the tweet this morning about my getting educated, um, someone responded and put up some scientific graphy stuff and the person didn't like it. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Silence. I don't like that. I was like, well, color, color the lines differently then. Well, this is, you know, this is the, the strange paradox we're living in. This, I compare this to the medieval era, you know, again, auto de fe on the one hand, uh, McCarthyism, are you, or have you ever been a communist, having to address that trans women really are women? Or how many times have you had to start sentences with, I believe that trans people are human and should not be discriminated against. 
but you know, and it's like, why are we having to make these really ridiculous prefaces? I mean, it's clear that everyone, not just trans identified people should have rights. Um, but we're put in this position of having to define our terms for speaking. I mean, it really, I, I keep thinking of Virginia Woolf, a room of you know one's own and how can we get back to being subjects in and of ourselves without having to preface everything we say with, I know I got a lady brain, but here's where I am standing. And I spoke, you know, when I spoke with Marcus Evans about the Tavistock tragedy, you know, we, we spoke about the lack of data, and this is not a coincidence. When you don't have data, you are free to ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And then when I say that, obviously the NHS isn't a for-profit service like the US, where these clinics have blossomed and they are happening at such a huge rate where you're seeing experts allegedly in the field on YouTube videos saying that, you know, if, children as young as you know one year can identify as transgender and you just have to look for the signs and i'm watching these videos thinking where is the oversight of this kind of a behavior professionally because it's it's really sanctionable um aside from the academic pressure you and freeman and stock and many others have faced there's this bar that seems to change constantly um on the one hand, this is what Blanchard also pointed at. When you have privatized services, like in the US, people want the rubber stamp that it's a, a, a mental condition. On the other hand, you have in more socialist medical states where people are saying, well, it's not a mental condition, but I want this covered. So we have the paradox of, is it or is it not a psychiatric condition? which is another issue, but it all fits within the narrative of the political, because when you said, in fact, uh, you said at one point, grown up mature adults do not talk in slogans. This is that the evidence you presented at the GRA panel. We need to think about the fact that there might be contexts where we want to treat trans women as though they were women and trans men as though they were men. Now, uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here is it not the case that what women have been pushing back, especially throughout the 20th century, is to not be treated as women in the sense of those were the frameworks of sexism? You just sit down now, your husband's back from the war, get out of the factory, get back to the kitchen, I'll have an omelet. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, and I guess that's a lot of the time the, the argument you get from people that oh somehow by acknowledging women's biology you're being sexist and it's like well no actually that's crazy acknowledging people's reality and their right to group together as women to self-organize politically to speak about our own experiences um that doesn't mean we're saying we're inferior it means we're saying we are female and uh, we have these experiences, some of which, some of it really is just biology. I mean, when you look at, you know, sports competition, for example, it's like, well, you know, I'm sorry, men are stronger and faster than women. And it's not sexist to say so. But it's this um, sexist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but also some of it is socialized. And, you know, if you look at 
and, and some, sometimes we might not know to what extent a particular difference um, is, is socialized, how much is nature or nurture. We might not be able to completely unpick it, um, but in a way, you know, it doesn't always matter. The point is you want to know, for example, are women underrepresented in STEM subjects or in IT or whatever, in order to, you know, understand, you might want, that might be your question, that might be your research question. What are the reasons? And if you muddle up the data and you're not allowed to admit that actually, oh, hang on a minute, trans women don't actually seem to look like women. They, you know, for example, they seem to be quite often overrepresented in things like IT, which women are not overrepresented in um in fact are very underrepresented in so there's some differences and right. you know okay so being trans isn't the same thing as being as being being a, a male who identifies as trans it's not the same thing as being a woman that's i think it's just obvious i'm just stating the obvious here and to state the obvious is not in any way to deny anyone's human rights. I absolutely believe in human, universal human rights, trans people's human rights. If trans people um, are being harassed at work or you know any of those kinds of things, I absolutely think we need, we need to deal with that. Um, I support their employment rights, their, their rights to free speech. But it's interesting when gender identity extremists are talking, they don't have to preface what they're saying with, of course I accept women's human rights. <laughs> because no one seems to care about women's human rights as a cervix haver myself (laughs) um i'd say no but this is where we are i mean the the research the cancer research oh my god my first thought when i saw cervix havers uh uterus havers menstruating people etc i just kept thinking how are immigrant women going to understand this they're learning english many of them but then, relatedly, I love it when the, the gender identitarians post on social media <laughs> articles from like Pakistan and Iran and India about how progressive these places are for trans people. And the irony bell seems to never go off to them that we know that Iran uses and has used sex reassignment surgery to ungay the gay. And this is not a secret. We also know that India and Pakistan, because you know, similar cultural traditions, obviously, for obvious reasons, um, they are also not so progressive, especially for poor women. What I find ironic in all of this is the way that culture and people of color, especially, are being co-opted within the trans narrative to sort of use as, as you know, body shields. Now, we, do, we, we are untouchable because we're referring to these other cultures. And if you argue, then I'm just going to tweet back, you are racist POS or whatnot. And I've seen this in action. Um, this happened when Deidre O'Neill and I wrote an open letter. We had a petition. People signed it in many numbers when the uh, British Film Institute had a special weekend for women filmmakers. Who did they have as the keynote speaker? Monroe Bergdorf, who is neither a female or a filmmaker. And we were like, what the heck? I mean, we are both struggling filmmakers and this is what you're offering women in the UK. Now, a lot of people were raised awareness of this issue at that time at the same point you know i got tweets saying oh you're just a racist and i'm like 
Is this where you're going? Because that's the way that the arguments have been used to deflect criticism, racism 101. And yet, with the need for data, the lack that Marcus Evans spoke to me about, the rise in suicide amongst girls in the UK, I believe it's from 14 years of age through 17, no one's wondering why so many girls might want to be boys. Would this be the ripe terrain to study that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. it's really interesting. And uh, I saw the private eye review of um, Abigail Schreier's book um, about this phenomenon. And it, it said, you know, it was talking about girls' hatred of their bodies. And it said, you know, for previous generations, the answer to these questions would have been feminism, but now it's to become a boy. And that is, it, it's, it's so sad um, because obviously we can all fully understand why girls might not want to be girls, why they might want to be boys, why they might want to say they're non-binary and therefore think that they can reject um, the trappings of gender altogether and it's just so sad because I think as as women with a bit more life experience we kind of know that they're in for a rude awakening um, and we're completely on their side even though they don't know that they think that you know they've been told that everyone who wants to question and talk about this hates them hates trans people wants them dead and that's so it's so awful. Can you imagine thinking that everyone wants you dead? I mean, yeah. it's such an unhelpful thing to be saying to people. Yeah, it's, I'm, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And th those kids have been so badly let down by the people who were supposed to be the adults in the room. And it's, you know, the whole thing has really made me lose heart in our institutions and our democracy because it's being left to such a small number of voices to speak up for reality to say actually two plus two equals four and to speak up for a duty of care for young people um and you know if if everybody who is skeptical about gender identity extremism just spoke up at once it would be over in a heartbeat well the irony is this I think a lot of the gender extremists in private don't actually believe for a second that one can change sex for a second. I, I have wanted to prank Owen Jones. <laughs> Maybe I should do that next time I'm in London. Invite him out for a drink and ask him to suck my male clitoris and see how he <laughs> reacts. Because no, but we are told to, you know, suck my female dick as another die in the fire, grease fire, basket full of cocks. <laughs> we could rewrite the 12 days of Christmas with all of these. I'm just <laughs> realizing I love rewriting songs. And, you know, there's a certain illiberalism at the heart of this. I mean, many of these extremists, well, I'd say all, believe that the wokeness of their movement has put the stamp of Jesus, Muhammad, every prophet in history on them. But we're seeing a failure of democracy by the capture. There's institutional capture all over this. How many universities have that Stonewall logo on them, much less, you know, scientific commissions. And my hope is that 
we can question these organizations as individuals, uh, that Stonewall might be made to answer for why it's pushing transgender ideology. And I mean from a structural point of view, because my whole theory about these organizations like the HRC in the States and Stonewall is that their mandate sort of fizzled out when Crixivan was invented. And since 1996, gay men, and mostly at that point, the demographic for AIDS was largely heterosexual, people forget. They started to be able to live normal lives as if they were taking insulin for diabetes in a sense. So from then on, these organizations were like, oh, what do we do? So then a little bit, they jumped on the gay marriage wagon, but they realized that there was not enough to, that, that would be solved or not, but there was not enough interest even within the community for this. And trans became the next moneymaker. And my hope is that there can be ethics committees even that overlook all NGOs, all charities that make them update their terms of, of uh, I guess their mandate, so to speak, and what they're doing and why they're doing this. And I don't mean just for gender. I saw huge abuses within NGOs in Haiti when I was doing research there. And it really was clear, and Haitians will tell you this, they've been here for 40 years, they're here making money, they're getting international money. They claim like the 2 billion that the, the Clintons were supposed to, I'm sorry, the 10 billion that the Clintons were supposed to give to Haiti, where did that go? People were really outraged by this. They say the money isn't going to us, the money's going to their own infrastructure, getting all these people who are graduates of Ivy League and Oxford institutions to come here and say, I'm working on this project. They get paid loads. It's scandalous what went on there. And there was no oversight, zero. And I do think that we've, we've really got to keep a keen eye as to why these institutions are pushing narratives. Because when you talk to actual trans people, the trans person on the street knows that they actually literally have not changed sex, the large part of them. And they struggle with issues just like you and I, right? I mean, you know, as they say, putting one pant leg on at a time and, you know, dealing with lockdown and friendships, love, so, 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 you know, it goes on. Yet this has been hyper-politicized to such a degree that one can only result in the answer of misogyny as to why this has happened. Because there seems to be this huge underbelly of misogyny, especially on the left. Like the voices speaking are those on the left against us. And, uh, you know, it makes me despair for my daughter, especially, but also my son, how they're going to function in a world that's teaching them that if they don't think a certain way, they're sort of aligning themselves with Hitler. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i mean it, it has been very depressing it's i, I think it's not a, a left-right issue and actually two of the most vociferous mps that uh that we dealt with on that committee as as you saw were actually conservative mps who are obviously fully signed up to this ideology um but yes, a lot of men on the left have really shown their true colors. Um, Owen Jones is one example, but you know, 
there's lots of examples and I have I have seen men that I know through new eyes um it shouldn't be a surprise when you look at things like you know the rape scandal in the SWP and so on that men who have you know either been in those kinds of organizations or who have flirted with those kinds of organizations really hate women but I, I don't think I ever really fully understood it before I, I and it's it's awful to see it how it really is um but in a way the hard left worries me less than the sort of cowardice on the on the softer left that they just don't want to talk about it because it really increases the polarization when for example the guardian just won't talk about this issue even though they know perfectly well that several of their journalists really want to talk about it and it's not just Michelle um, Moore, Suzanne Moore, sorry. Um, they are, it's not just that they don't cover it as a conversation point, they don't cover it from a news angle accurately either. And I think as soon as people really understand what's happening uh, with things like women's sports, they, you know, they will start to ask some questions. Um, and so for the Guardian to really shut that down, it's it's so unhelpful because we kind of think, oh, everyone knows what's happening because there's all this reporting in the Times and, you know, there's been some great reporting in the Times. And so surely everyone knows all about this now. But, you know, I'm someone who grew up with the Guardian and I until recently, I would never would have read the Times. And it's only because I'm on Twitter and so on, which the vast majority of people aren't that I'm seeing all this stuff if you're you know if you're someone who's a guardian reader maybe looks at the BBC website occasionally how much do you really know about it probably very very little and so it's easy to fall in with this narrative of just well oh it's just about trans rights when actually it's not about trans rights it's about removing rights from women and it's also about what's happening with a medical scandal that mainly affects young girls um, I think so many people have been parroting this line that, oh, it's just like gay rights. And, you know, this is like the challenge for our generation to be on the, um, the right side of history, as they say, which is another of the slogans that I hate. Um, but it's, you know, it do, they don't stop and question, well, hang on, we've got co-founders of Stonewall who are turning around and saying this is wrong. And gay people never ask to be medicalized. In fact, they ask the act exact opposite stop trying to treat being gay as though it's a medical condition because it's not so you know is is trans identity something that needs medical treatment if it is then how can there possibly be an analogy with being gay um, and as you say the homophobia and the enthusiasm which some countries have taken on uh, this idea and some parents it has to be said have taken on this idea that they can take what would have been a tomboy daughter possibly a lesbian um, and turn them into a boy and take a, an effeminate boy possibly gay and turn them into a girl that that is homophobic fairly obviously um, and it, it just doesn't seem to have any real parallel with gay rights it, that's just a line that Stonewall promotes. And I think, as you say, they ran out of fights, um, particularly after gay marriage was accepted. But they didn't need to see it like that. You know, 
mental health among um, LGB youth is really, really bad. They could, Stonewall could have turned around and used their great resources to say, let's try and deal with um, this mental health crisis, which is so under-resourced. You know, um, children and uh, adolescent mental health services in this country are on their knees. Maybe Stonewall could have turned in that direction and actually done some good. But as you say, it's, you know, it's a multi-million corporation effectively. And the, what they're doing is they're, in their own terms, they're incredibly successful. Like when you say this isn't political, I would first I'll address, I would like to address that simply because what shocked me about my seeing the misogyny on the left is that I was unaware that there was so much misogyny on the left. I expected it on the right, right? No access to abortion. Mm -hmm. Jesus tells you that you should be in the kitchen making pancakes, etc. <laughs> so that's, you know, that was the shock to me. Also, when I left academia and entered journalism, <laughs> Try and pitch a piece on this subject to anything on the left. And we've seen the debates even amongst ourselves on social media. There have been debates amongst feminists saying, well, you've allied yourself with the right-wing organization. There have been criticisms of Wolf. But then women in the States are like, we're getting the death knell. We, and they were right, because look what happened last week. And so it's almost like we have no other choice than to even start reading, you know, the spectator and whatnot. The left-right paradigm has been broken because of many issues from free speech to some on the right might even be using this as a way of gotcha later on. You know, we've seen that in history. But I do worry that the access to information is being barred it's it's a it's a perpetual cycle this it's a what would it be called a tautology where if you can't collect data alice for your investigation to see hmm based on what ray blanchard told me the other day he says you know anecdotally speaking he's seeing far fewer cases of his private his previous clientele of largely what would have been gay men who were repressed growing up and told they were girls, that is becoming less. And might that be the case? Because hmm, gay identity is more accepted today, so they don't feel the need to identify as women? Like, who's doing the study? And can we do the study if you are forced, and let's say you're doing the study, to refer to everyone by unknown names? Because you don't even know if they're really male or female, because, hey, it's a lot, it's a bingo game at this point. And so we do need the data. We need to know why the 4,000% explosion in recent years of girls and why the homophobia against young lesbians. I don't think it's gonna be that they need to identify as non-binary to get out of being raped. Right, yeah. I mean, uh, and again, wouldn't it be great if Stonewall put some of their resources towards supporting young lesbians. Um, it's, and you touched on the point about media outlets and it's such an interesting move that we see performed all the time where, you know, we're not able to publish in outlets like The Guardian, for example, um, not because there aren't plenty of journalists on the Guardian who agree with us but because you know it's deemed to be for whatever reason I guess they think it's commercially they're so reliant on US clickbait now or maybe they just don't want the hassle I don't know but you can't speak there and so you write for the spectator for example 
and well you're evil now so I'm not going to listen to you and I'm not going to read what you said because it's in the spectator so but you're not being silenced because you're in the spectator so it's 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 so interesting, isn't it? Because I guess it's a move that's always been made by men on the left, you know, why don't you just shut up about this for now? Because, you know, there are more important things and you shouldn't be, um, you know, dallying with the right. I think it's, it's really difficult. We have to get our message out and people will make pragmatic tactical decisions about how they do that. And it's going to be different in different countries and at different times. Um, I think it, it's hugely important that we have principled trade union leftist women very clearly um, flying the flag for the fact that this issue is an issue for women on the left. They will keep, you know, men like Owen Jones will keep saying, oh, this is, they're right wing, they're all fascists. But there they are, you know, women like Ruth Sawatka and Kiri Tonks. And, you know, you'd have to be insane to think that they were right wing, let alone that they were fascists. So, you know, we're here and we're at least, I think if this is an advantage that we have in the UK, that actually there are lots of left wing women standing up and organizing and making the arguments, albeit we sometimes have to make the arguments in outlets, not of our choosing. It's almost as if we're back in the day also uh, when women would talk and they're just not heard. <laughs> so you have to sort of speak. It's amazing how many times we have to repeat the same thing to be heard once. Um, in like Kiri Tunks and Women's Place UK, they, they received all kinds of flack for simply organizing talk. That's and yeah, and that's it's absolutely extraordinary. And of course, the woman's place was set up after the assault on Maria McLachlan at Speaker's Corner um, in order to allow women to discuss proposed legislative change in a democracy. And, you know, the campaign to stop them from being able to even hold a meeting so vicious i've never heard of anything like it can't policymakers step back and think hang on a minute these people who are so desperate not to have their ideas discussed why do you think that is <laughs> uh, selena todd should have just identified as non-binary <laughs> maybe she wouldn't have needed bodyguards right yeah. i mean we're, we're really at an era of not being able to discuss civilly even through disagreement I do not want trans identified people to not speak their mind. I simply want us to be able to speak peacefully together to disagree peacefully together, no hyperbole, but let's just talk. And we're in the thick of it now. And COVID has brought this out, I think. It's brought out the authoritarianism and everyone. And I wish it hadn't. What are the resolutions to free speech around this very touching issue, touching our lives, that seems to be going, it's going forward, but it feels like a cha-cha-cha, two steps forward, two steps back, if you know what I mean. I absolutely know what you mean, and it's, it's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, uh, the, the people that we are doing battle with are so well funded and they, they have all of the mainstream organizations that should have been doing the work 
So you think of organizations like Liberty in the UK used to be called the National Council for Civil Liberties. They are supposed to defend our civil liberties. They don't do that anymore. Um, and that's because they've been captured. So it's left to um, grassroots organizations, people like Women's Place and Fair Play for Women and individual academics to, to try to do this lobbying work to try to um, talk to legislators and, and, and try to save our organizations like our trade unions and so on and our, our data collection. It's a battle on so many fronts and, and we, we all have full-time jobs and it's exhausting. <laughs> um, I think we are winning. Um, I think we're at a point now where there's increasingly there is work being published. Uh, there's a few journal articles, you know, I was able to publish a journal article on sex and the census, and that I've seen a few journal articles coming out about things like sex and sports science and sport ethics. Um, you know, Callie Burt's article about the Equality Act in the US. So it's starting to open up. And as soon as that happens, and you know, the journals realize that actually they're not dealing with the IRA and their, you know, their offices are not going to be firebombed, you know, grow a spine. And I, I think once those arguments come out, it's, it's going to be very, very hard for a movement which has relied from the outset on no debate to cope with debate um, and to cope with evidence and argument. So I am optimistic, but I'm also tired. <laughs> and I think um, we need some new troops. But it, it, and I think we're getting new troops actually all the time. Like I get messages from people all the time, um, especially from academics who are scared to speak out initially, and then they'll gradually, you know, start to find their voice. And it, so for example, the recent letter um, defending Kathleen Stock after that very ridiculous defamatory petition against her when she was awarded an OBE. Um, a lot of people signed that who hadn't said anything before. And having signed it, they will realize that, you know, okay, I signed that and I'm still employed <laughs> and everything's okay, you know, because they can't come for us all. And I think it's interesting that they, that a woman like Kathleen, is saying things which are just common. Yes, yeah, she's a philosopher, but she's basically saying, you know, sex is real and um, it's not, <laughs> you can't literally change sex. You kind of, you, you don't need to be a philosopher to understand that, but it is really important to have someone speaking up in defense of, you know, conceptual integrity as a philosopher. Um, but she is made into this absolute demon like she is a witch and she has to be burned at the stake even though the vast majority of people would agree with her and even the vast majority of philosophers would quietly agree with her so she is she's become this kind of symbol this witch I, it just fascinates me to see it playing out it's it's, you know, as a sociologist, it is both fascinating and terrifying to see how, how fragile our academic norms actually are um, in terms of, not just in terms of civility, but in terms of kind of norms of 
rigor, norms of discourse and analysis. It's, yeah, it's really shocking. And I know that social media is part of it. Social media makes it much easier to organize a mob. But social media doesn't mean that people have to give in because frankly, you know, a Twitter storm is not a kneecapping, it's not a firebombing, it's just a Twitter storm. All that people have to do, all that institutions have to do is actually wake up and realize that they can stand up to this. And if they all stand up to it, then there really won't be any consequences at all.